0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we'll have a deep discussion on an important topic that makes many uncomfortable, femicide and violence against women in Latin America. But first, Natalie Odinger is here with our weekly review of news from around the region.
1: Bolivia's Congress has cleared the way for a national referendum that could change that country's constitution and allow popular president Evo Morales to run again for office. Gabriela Montano, a member of the National Assembly, represented the popular mood in her speech supporting the referendum. Seguramente... Surely this is one
0: of the causes most important to me in my life as a member of this nation's assembly. I feel proud of the power this assembly has to represent the people and name our leader. We have a mandate to represent the people.
1: Morales was first elected to the presidency nine years ago. He won re-election last year by a landslide, beating his nearest competitor by 37 percentage points. Morales is already the president who has served the longest in Bolivian history. If Bolivians approve the constitutional change, it will allow him to run for re-election in 2019. Morales is also the first indigenous president in Bolivian history. Colombia is lifting its ban prohibiting same-sex couples from adopting children. The Constitutional Court, the highest court in the land, ruled this week that same-sex couples can go through the same process as a heterosexual couple to finalize adoptions. Judges agree that children have the right to have a set of loving parents, no matter their sexual orientation. From now on, any questions assessing sexual orientation will not be allowed on adoption applications in Colombia to prevent discrimination. A breakthrough in Mexico this week for those who want to legalize marijuana use. Mexico's Supreme Court approved a petition from a small club of marijuana users that they could grow the plant for their personal recreational use. The court ruling only extends to the four people in the marijuana club, but those working to legalize the drug in Mexico say the ruling sets a precedent for other cases. Because of the constitutional restrictions on the court's power in Mexico, this single ruling does not make exceptions for other groups who want to break Mexico's drug laws. The sale of marijuana is still illegal in Mexico. But Mexicans can carry up to 18 ounces of the drug legally. And the Supreme Court ruled that a small club can grow and use the drug as long as the marijuana is not sold and the drug is solely for the recreational use of the small group's members. Conservation groups and businesses came to the rescue this week in Honduras, but they were saving an unlikely group of animal victims. A farm with 11,000 crocodiles, yes crocodiles the farm is owned by the influential rosenthal family in honduras a family which owns newspapers and sports teams but also the family the u.s government accuses of having ties to drug cartels the rosenthal's sell the crocodiles on their farm for their meat and their hides but when the u.s froze the family's assets last month workers on the farm refused to feed the crocs the workers demanded to be paid first This week, various groups in Honduras banded together to ship tons of chicken and beef to the farm to save the hungry cocks. No word yet, though, on long-term feeding plans for the hungry reptiles. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger.
0: Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Brazil. Our listening group in Brazil is our second-largest all-time, behind only our listeners in the United States. So we say obrigado to all of our listeners in Brazil and elsewhere around the globe. And now, a bit of a warning to listeners. Our topic this week is not for the faint of heart, and it includes an in-depth discussion of violent themes that some may find disturbing. This past summer, a series of protests in Argentina and Mexico finally captured the media's attention on the epidemic of violence faced by women in Latin America. Femicide is defined as the murder of a person specifically because she's female, and some countries in Latin America have some of the world's worst statistics for this type of murder. Our expert in this area of violence is law professor Karen Musalo, the director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at the Hastings College of Law at the University of California. She joined us via Skype from Berkeley, California, to discuss the epidemic of femicide.
2: I don't think it's overstating it when you look at the statistics for the countries um, in Latin America that have really drawn the most attention for this phenomenon of femicides. And the countries that I actually have the most familiarity with and work on the most are the countries that are, they're, they're commonly called the Northern Triangle countries. Those are Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And they are characterized by not only some of the highest homicide rates in the world, but also the highest femicide rates in the world. So El Salvador had the highest femicide rate in the world for the last year in which numbers were available, um, which was, I think, 2011. Guatemala had the third highest, and Honduras had the seventh highest. And we're talking about globally. So to have these three countries be in the top ten um, of the countries having, um, you know, a very troubling, high, you know, high levels of of killings, gender-motivated killings of women, you could call it an epidemic. And I should make the observation that people um, comment on the likely under-reporting of these crimes or mischaracterization. So some of these, you know, some of the statistical rankings might be a little bit off. Like people have said, well, Honduras is rated as seventh, but Honduras might actually be much higher if these crimes were reported and correctly characterized. And by correctly characterized, I mean that a woman is killed and not all killings of women are femicides. And often they are femicides, but the authorities don't characterize them that way. So I don't think it's sort of stating it too too strongly to say that it's an epidemic given the, the the statistics
0: as you mentioned those northern triangle countries are smaller countries and so that that adds to the weight of of having them rank so highly on a on a global scale when we see a bigger country a country like Mexico that has Um, 120 million people or thereabouts. Um, The statistic from the UN from 2011, which I think is the statistical base that you are basing some of those other rankings on, also says that as many as six women a day are killed in Mexico. And I, I think that that becomes a difficult statistic to swallow when you think about it.
2: It's disturbing. And I think when we say that these are Are femicides, what we're, we're essentially saying is that the reason that the victim was chosen is because she's a woman. And that distinguishes it from other homicides where you may have, you know, people that are killed um, because it's a robbery or people that are killed because there's, you know, some other, you know, conflict that unfortunately is resolved in a really brutal way of somebody taking somebody's life. But here you're saying that, this person is chosen and this person is killed for the reason that she is a woman. You know, to sort of wrap your mind around that, the kind of misogyny or hatred towards women or the other factors that go into killing someone because of her gender.
0: I'm glad you brought up misogyny because I I have to wonder about this. We've been porting a lot this year about this spike in homicide rates in El Salvador, and we tend to say that that is a result of the gang warfare and the end of the gang truce that happens in El Salvador, but I don't think you can explain away femicide in the same way, and so I'm wondering what you see as the root causes behind this misogyny.
2: Yeah, and I don't want to oversimplify. You know, I I, and other um, other colleagues that I work with, both sort of grassroots activists and, um, you know, UN people, um, governmental people, non-governmental people, you know, so many people working on this issue and really asking the question of what explains this? Why is this happening? And, and I think in a way, you know, to just say it's misogyny, it's hatred of women is, is an oversimplification. Each of these countries have long and complicated histories that have led to them being where they are now, with their patterns of violence, both general societal violence and violence against women. So, you know, maybe if I could spin out a, a couple of the, or or just mention and 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 flesh out a, a couple of the factors that people often point at. So, one is that all three of these countries, as well as other countries in Latin America, have histories of um, a deep and enduring gender inequality. So patriarchy, really systems where um, women are seen as inferior to men, and often violence is used to maintain the subordinate position that women hold in those societies. So, so, so that's you know the gender inequality, and the patriarchy, and the machismo. But then these are also countries that have um, many of them have gone through long and very violent and brutal conflicts, both sort of historically going back to colonial times and more recent history with the long-running civil war in Guatemala, 36-year-running civil war in which genocide was committed and other massive human rights violations, civil conflict in El Salvador, um, Honduras with a recent coup in 2009 and Honduras also being the site for the U.S. basing of the Contra war um, against um, uh, Nicaragua, the Sandinistas. And, and so you have s- situations where human rights violations were committed, in some cases on a massive scale, and that those human rights violations often included targeted sexual violence you know, violence, gender violence, brutality against women, torture, rape, um, during these conflicts really characterized the conflicts. And there was impunity for that violence. There were amnesty laws or other historical developments that never punished those who had perpetrated um, this violence, including the gender violence. And I think you have to look at that when you're saying, why is there this violence and this violence against women? And then in addition to that, um, organized crime and gang activity, which has proliferated um, in these countries, and where people have said that to the degree that machismo and patriarchy um, exists in these countries, within organized crime and gang activity, it's like machismo on steroids. And so women are really seen as, as, as property and as kind of pawns in the conflict between gangs. So, yes, there's misogyny, you know, certainly um, is is a factor, but I think looking at these other historical factors is is important um, to do. And then to also say and to comment as a significant factor is that all three of these countries are countries that, although they're not failed states, They have high levels of corruption and really, really weak um, police and judicial systems. And so you have impunity for you know across the board for all crimes, but perhaps even higher levels of impunity for violence against women, because violence against women, the way it it's it's considered, and has been so normalized that it hasn't been taken seriously. And when you have impunity for violence against women, that becomes an additional factor that perpetuates and encourages the violence. So yes, misogyny, but yes, a whole other constellation of factors that go back to colonial period, more recent history, conflicts you know, impunity, rising crime, amnesty, you know, for human rights violations, it all becomes a toxic mix and the context within which um, this violence against women is being committed.
0: I think in some ways what you're saying is that in these areas, because of this toxic mix, the, the value of human life has been lowered. And because of machismo, that means women become uh, a, a stronger target in these areas where where you have impunity
2: yeah I think that's that's right. i mean people have often commented i've made a lot of trips to the region and met with a range of people, both governmental and non governmental and u n and really had conversations about this and and one of the comments that that people say and they really say it with such a sense of of the tragedy the societal tragedy is that you know when you have these brutal Um, conflict, civil conflict, civil war, repression, um, and people have learned that you you solve conflicts by using violence and and high levels of violence, it really sends the wrong message about the use of violence in society and its acceptability. And so if you, you bring that into a situation where you have gender inequality, um, you have it become even more accepted and tolerated that men can use violence against women. you know, it certainly is a, is a strong factor, the, the, the way in which people have become inured to and accept um, violence.
0: Coming up, more from our in-depth discussion with Karen Musalo on the links between femicide, violence, and unauthorized immigration. Stay with us.
2: This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place.
1: Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund action kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call one 800 call
0: WWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Here now is the second part of our interview with Karen Musalo, the director of the Institute for Gender and Refugee Studies at the Hastings College of Law at the University of California. She joined us via Skype from Berkeley, California.
2: You know, the work that we do, although we're based in California, we actually, our center actually has a national and an international um, uh, presence. Because what we do is we assist attorneys all across the country and even some attorneys outside of the US for how to um, really frame the arguments that women who face gender violence should be granted the protection of asylum. It's actually a very controversial issue. It's been a controversial issue in the US and it's been a controversial issue internationally. And so in our role of both training attorneys, providing them with expert evidence about the countries, you know, litigating impact cases, we've been able to get a sense of what's going on across the country. And so not just in California, but um, women from these countries who are arriving um, throughout the U.S. or arriving in Canada or arriving in places within the EU Uh, seeking protection because they feel that if they felt that if they remained at home, um, they would be killed. And so it's been a struggle to win protection of asylum um, for these women, for a lot of complicated reasons. Some of them with the way our law has developed, some of them with, you know, attitudes, fears. I mean, that's an area we could go into more if you, you know, if you wanted to explore it. But um, it's, it's very important, I think, when we see people fleeing and seeking protection, that we understand why they're fleeing. And if we understand why they're fleeing, then I think it's more likely that we will respect our international obligations to, to protect them. And so that's really the, the, the work that we, we do, is making the argument that um, women's rights are human rights. And women who would be uh, tortured or beaten or sexually exploited or killed because they're women are deserving of of refugee protection.
0: Do you see judges in this country, immigration judges, who are willing to understand that argument now?
2: It has taken, I would say, um, decades to see some progress in this country. And to give you an example, um, there is a case that's a pretty highly publicized case of a Guatemalan woman by the name of Rodi Alvarado, who I represented, who applied for asylum in, in 1996, I believe, in San Francisco, was actually granted asylum by an immigration judge in San Francisco And the government, the U.S. government, appealed that grant, said essentially, this is incorrect. She should not have gotten asylum. And it took from 1996 until 2009, 13 years, before she actually had a final decision, again, giving her back the asylum that she'd been granted in 1996. She was granted in 1996. The government appealed And the asylum was actually revoked. It was taken away from her. And then we continued with advocacy on her behalf. And literally, this case was so controversial that three different attorneys general of the United States, Janet Reno, John Ashcroft, and Michael Mukasey, all became personally involved in her case for asylum and it took 13 years to resolve so when I tell people this is a controversial area of the law I'm not exaggerating and when she was granted asylum when Rody Alvarado was granted asylum in 2009 it was not in a decision that we lawyers call precedential meaning that that it did not bind other adjudicators and it took another five years it took until 2014 that we actually had a decision by a court that was a precedent that actually was binding on other judges so that, you know, so that that decision gave some legal authority for the fact that women who were victims of domestic violence in a situation where their home country will refuse to protect them, that they should be granted asylum, and still, many judges don't follow that precedent. So if you just like think about what I told you, Rodeo Alvarado applied in 1996, was granted. That grant was taken away from her. It took her until 2009 to be recognized as an asylum and to be given her asylum protection. And then it took another five years to have legal precedent Um, you understand just how much resistance there is. And I should mention that in Rodi Alvarado's case, as in many of these cases, there was no question whatsoever about her credibility or whether she was telling the truth. The judges all said, we believe that for 10 years, she was absolutely battered um, into unconsciousness by her husband, including that he held a, a machete to her throat, that he pulled her by the hair and broke windows and mirrors with her head and that he threatened that he would kill her and it was undisputed that she went to the police and went to the courts and they told her, go home, we can't protect you. All of that; those were the undisputed facts of her case and yet it took from you know 1996 until 2009 to, to, to get a final decision of asylum. And
0: what is the end of that particular story? She she won her asylum. Is she here and living away from violence in this country now?
2: So she is. And and I, you know, I think the sense of, of, of you know, justice, you know, when one feels that justice has been done, she is living in this, um, in the U.S. She has legal protection. So she does not have to ever return to Guatemala and confront um, the brutality that she endured there for so many years of her her life, and and what we struggle for, myself, my colleagues at the center, other you know wonderful um, partners on this uh, in this struggle across the country, is we you know are struggling for the recognition of protection for so many women like Rody Alvarado. Her case involved domestic violence, but there's many other forms of gender violence that women and girls suffer, and. They are still the law is still very unclear, and there still is a lot of resistance to protecting them. So should a young girl who was you know raped by a gang member at the age of twelve should she be granted asylum? You know, should somebody who was kidnapped and sold to sexual traffickers to um, produce pornography? should she be granted asylum? I could give you all the different instances of horrific violations of women's and girls' rights, and yet the law continues to be unclear of whether or not we'll protect them or we will send them back to a situation where this extreme violation of their rights um, will continue. And, and just to circle back, you know, to the question of, about femicides and what causes them, one of the things that I didn't mention but I will add here is many people say that if you look at the levels of domestic violence in these countries, probably some percentage of the femicides are just the extreme end of domestic violence, that these are, are men who abuse their intimate partners for the entire relationship. And on one occasion, the abuse was so extreme that um, it resulted in death. So there's just a lot of you know, a lot of factors wrapped up into why, you know, what what are the causes of these femicides that are occurring. We
0: could talk on this subject for quite a while, but I wonder uh, if there's something in particular that we have missed.
2: The point that I would really like to underscore, Mm -hmm. maybe one or or two um, points, when we talk about asylum seekers or migrants coming to this country and seeking protection, there, there often is some fear and especially when the economy is not doing well and some people feel kind of left out of the American Dream and almost feel themselves in competition for um, the migrants who are coming here, the asylum seekers who are coming here and seeking um, protection. I understand that and I you know I understand how there are a lot of people who are not are not doing well. And they are fearful that there, you know, if we grant protection to people coming here, that there will be huge numbers and it will disadvantage them. And I want to say a couple of things. I mean, one is that many, many economists who have looked at the issue of immigration more broadly have looked at how it doesn't harm the economy. In reality, it contributes to the economy in a way that really benefits all of us. But even if that weren't the case, sort of the second thing point that I, I want to make is that people are coming for a reason. They're coming because their lives are really at risk. They're coming to save themselves and lives of their children. And so the U.S., you know, I think prides itself on being a country that cares about human rights and is a leader. And the fear that many might come really can't be a legitimate and moral reason um, to not accept and protect people who need protection. I think that to the gr- to the degree that there's a legitimate fear that if we protect people too many will come then the response isn't to keep them out. The response is really to say we need to look at the root causes why um, these women or why these children are coming and put our, our efforts into working with partners in the countries to really address the root causes because nobody and I know sometimes people don't believe this but nobody really wants to leave home. nobody wants to leave everything that they know everything that they love, their family and you know throw themselves on the mercy of strangers in a strange country right where they don't speak the language where they don't have a job where they're really at a disadvantage but they're coming to save their lives and so I think that we need to um, say they're coming for a reason, And we need to work with these countries to find ways that violence against women is addressed in in an effective way and that these levels of violence come down so that these women and these children and these other individuals, you know, from these countries who are also the victims of this violence um, no longer have to flee.
0: Thank you so much, Law Professor Karen Musalo, Director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at the Hastings College of Law, University of California, joining us via Skype from Berkeley, California on Latin Pulse today. Thank you for being our guest.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. I I really have appreciated our conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our focus on femicide and violence in Latin America. And now a programming note, Latin Pulse will not be online next week. I'll be traveling in Cuba preparing a special program for later this month, but we will be back with that special on November the 20th. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Ottinger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchanos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.